Yes, what's not work safe about sick worms? You can't just have to touch the dishes that you suffer by little death. He was pitching his fellow potatoes into the fat. It's half three and something is happening. There's no drill version of the theme to hunting. It was as though someone had sort of like phoned through a description of what coke tasted like. the seventh in a series of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about six things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. As you'll know, if you've heard the Halloween extra of Looks Unfamiliar, it's fair to say that as a young child, I wasn't exactly history's greatest fan of BBC Test Card F, the one with the non-moving girl and clown playing a seemingly infinite game of noughts and crosses. The clown itself was creepy enough, but it was actually the girl that bothered me more, not least on account of the fact that she was looking directly at you, with an expression that suggested both that you could see inside your mind, and that she found something in there that you hadn't. Obviously, this has done me absolutely no lasting psychological damage whatsoever. Cerebral slash technological prototype cyber anxiety is one thing though. Others have much more elemental fears, and when broadcaster Bob Fisher appeared on the show, he still recoiled at the thought of a certain plant. Giant hogweed. Now, I'm not saying for a second that giant hogweed is a lost part of British pop culture that people will not remember, because giant hogweed, contrary to the efforts of many garden clearance firms over the last (laughs) couple of centuries, is very much still with us. I go walking quite a lot along local riverbanks, and I see it all the time. This is specifically a report on John Craven's news round that I've managed to date to... 1982, and I'm assuming early summer 1982, because that's when giant hogweed starts to flourish. (laughs) Giant hogweed, for those that are unaware, it is a pretty nasty plant. It grows on riverbanks, it grows to pretty terrifying heights, it can Mm. be 8, 9, 10 feet tall. It does have poisonous sap to the extent where if giant hogweed sap lands on your skin, it will turn that skin incredibly photosensitive. The sap is phototoxic. Can you tell I've researched this in quite some depth? I can. Yeah, have you got the Latin name? Because I've got that Oh, come here. on, let's have it. It's Heraculeum mantigazanium. It even sounds nasty. If you get giant hogweed on your skin, effectively what will happen is that your skin will blister really nastily within about 30 minutes. But that, realistically, is the extent of the damage. However, mm. I am convinced that in early summer 1982, the avuncular, the genial John Craven, ran a news report on the dangers of giant hogweed, essentially in the style of great public information films, warning children to stay away from it because it was nasty and they could get blisters if they played with it and got the sap on their skin. However, the, the sting in the tail here, and I'm convinced I've got this right because uh, none of that would have stuck in my mind otherwise. I think at some point during that news report, John Craven turned his steely gaze down the television camera and said, it might even kill you. And that, for me, was the next year of my life ruined. (laughs) Not only did I become phobic of giant hogweed, which was was not a a plant that I was going to encounter every single day of my life. You know, it wasn't marching up the drive to our front door. Not only did I become phobic of it, I became phobic of riverbanks in general because as far as I was concerned if you went to a riverbank you were going to fall into a nest of giant hogweed <laughs> and die there were no two ways about it <laughs> this came to a head at the 10th birthday party of my good friend Paul Clark which again I've dated to the summer of 1982 <laughs> because as Paul Clark's birthday treat we went to see Rocky 2 <laughs> at the cinema I like where this is going <laughs> 
But then, as a treat after the film screening, we went back to Paul Clark's house. Now, Paul Clark's house, now you see the, the horror that is about to unfold here. Paul Clark's house backed on to the River Leven, which is a subsidiary of the River Tees. And his garden, he had a sloping back garden. At the bottom of the garden was the riverbank. We were told by his mum, you know, that the hula hoops and the sausage rolls will be ready for you in uh, <laughs> a, about half an hour's time. What? I mean, obviously, we'd, we'd seen Rocky too, like, you know, in the, in the previous three hours of the afternoon. Why she hadn't got her finger out and prepared them during those those three hours, I have no idea. I feel like being appallingly unfair to Mrs. Clark here. But ten of us marched down to the riverbank. As you can imagine, giant hogweed was in full flight, and I'd seen it on John Craven's news round. I knew what it looked like. The extraordinary thing about giant hogweed and its appeal to ten-year-olds is that when it's dry, it makes for a phenomenally effective lightsaber. So the other nine kids in the party immediately turned into Jedi. It was like a fight from the Bash Street kids. It was like a, a cloud of dust with fists and boots and bits of giant hogweed sticking out of it. I, as you can imagine, just I ran. I, I <laughs> never shifted so quickly in my life. Ran straight up the sloping garden back to the house and had to throw myself upon the mercy of Mrs. Clark, who, like, not unreasonably, was entirely like bemused. And my fear of giant hogweed stayed with me for, I would say, the rest of 1982, possibly into 1983. It only really began to subside when I discovered that the world was teetering on the brink of a nuclear apocalypse. But the giant hogweed would have survived the blast, surely. You would imagine so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's particularly nasty stuff. I don't remember the John Craven report, but I'll come back to how I knew about giant hogweed in a minute. Okay. But I tried to find it, and I couldn't, but I can't believe that he might have gone a bit over the top about it because one thing I did find was he was still writing about Giant Hogweed for Country File magazine in 2015 No! and warning about its menace He was? was yes Sensational! I didn't know this He's, he's obsessed Have you got a quote? The man is obsessed <laughs> <laughs> I haven't sadly but Oh my But the, the other things I found out just before I come to my own anecdote were two things just Genesis did the song about the threat of Giant Hogweed Indeed they did But being Genesis it had to start with a bit about Hugh Garth and how it got yes. delivered there by a very posh man or something. Yes. The other thing is, the EU have been regularly funding the giant alien programme to move giant hogweed from the UK. Right. So, yeah, cheers, Nigel. Let's hope it comes for you first. So in the event of Brexit, giant hogweed will be, will be, be rampant. It finally will be marching up the drive to get me. What I remember was, because I don't remember the, like I say, the news round report, I remember there being a column on it in the Liverpool Echo, one of those weird, smudgy, okay. like, falling off the edge of the page columns they used to have where there'd be like two lines where the line spacing was different to the rest of it right but warning that it had been spotted on the Wirral and that children were not to go near oh, yeah. it so there was something in the air at the time there then. was there was and the main reason it sticks in my mind was one of my sisters did not get on with some children down the road she saw them playing with some reeds but they found some went, went up and said, that's giant hogweed, and they ran off screaming. <laughs> was it giant hogweed? It wasn't. It was, it was, fal- just, right, it was okay. like... It was false flag giant yes, hogweed. Yes, it was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, you know, I'm walking along a riverbank now and yeah. I see some. I still will give it a wide berth. Sadly, it's unclear whether news of the giant hogweed panic made it as far as the BBC teletext service, CFAX, 
but it's unlikely that juggler Gillian Kirby would have been looking for it anyway, as when she appeared on Looks Unfamiliar, she wanted to tell us all about a far more secretive and indeed grubby use of teletext. We got teletext in our household about 1989. So around the time, I think it was about 92 when our colossal license, and then it became teletext. And the weird thing about teletext is after 9pm, you got teletext after dark, which is not some kind of weird uh, pixel-based horror, but it was sexy teletext. You say sexy teletext, but I mean... My recollections of it, where it was, it was like the back page of Sky magazine. It was about yeah. erotic on that level, you know, sort of like kids in school who go Whoa, rub their hands like Richie and Eddie, but yeah. it wasn't quite, wasn't quite anything Mary Whitehouse would have been getting too upset over. If she knew how, I wasn't sure she'd know how to operate Teletext. To be honest, she probably thought it was all wholesome uh, weather reports. Because I remember the letters pages on Teletext were really very right wing, so maybe that's what Mary Whitehouse read. Well, it was kind of hidden. That- Actually, I don't remember how I found the After Hours pages. They were sort of black and dark blue, weren't they? That was the colour scheme. And there were things like, I remember there was a dreadful kind of sex humour strip called Turn of the Screw. Yeah. I was about to say it was like a porn version of The Adventures of 40 from Channel 4's Turn of the Sex, but that just sounds completely wrong, so... Do you remember remember Turn of the Worm from... um... (laughs) You're going to mention Turn of the Worm being sick, aren't you? from digitizer yeah yeah the one the one that everybody says is attributes to being the last day ever of teletext or something it wasn't was it it was just when they closed digitizer down anyone who's not seen that i'm not even going to describe it go and google turn of the word being sick but don't do it at work that is very very important well it's just a tim is just a worm being ill well i don't (laughs) understand what the problem is what's not work safe about sick worms i don't even have an answer to that stuff i remember on it there were graphics that were kind of the equivalent of those dreadful discs for like the atari st that would do the rounds at school where people would say oh it's like nudie pictures on it and it's really yeah. sort of blocky you know like somebody's like email signature almost it's like erotic etch-a-sketch or something yeah there was a sex quiz there was sex scope which is your erotic horoscopes i'm convinced there was all some kind of hookup service like a kind of couples meet couples thing. That now rings a bell. Um, I remember they had chat That can't be legal, surely. Well, there used to be a pen pal page on um, the teenage bit of teletext, and I think that was basically a contact magazine for bored teenagers. You know, people would write in saying, I like going out and having a laugh and blow, and I want to speak to boys of 15 who like the same things. Was that you? Did you send that in? It was not, but um, it sort of makes sense they'd have some kind of contact magazine type couples thing on there now i'm wondering about the offcom uh, implications of that of basically having hookups on teletext well i'm wondering how long it actually lasted because i will admit i very quickly graduated to not long after discovery it my parents got somehow ended up with cable tv i still uh, don't really know how and then you know you've got the german channels where it's either mind-blowing sort of 60s drug stuff or actual soft porn and yeah. so that was how your saturday nights were spent from then on when everyone had gone to bed not looking at just blocky lettering waiting forever it to get to the next page but i believe it didn't last very long no i think i imagine it had a limited audience you know obviously back in the the early 90s if you wanted to get adult materials a lot more of an embarrassing procedure but maybe yeah maybe they just got a flood of complaints and thought you know it's not working over on cfax of course bbc radio 3 would have had no time for such degeneracy 
filling up page 63 with all the latest hot classical music gossip and missives from men in evening wear shouting, ABOO! What they never seemed to mention, though, was their surprising number of comedy shows, so eventually it fell to me to write a book about them. And to launch it, I appeared on a special edition of Looks Unfamiliar being grilled by Gareth F. Hirons about the many forgotten shows by very much not forgotten names, including Radio 3's bizarre obsession with establishing a hit sitcom. Throughout the 80s, Radio 3 actually wanted to have a hit sitcom. Believe it or not, there were loads of attempts at it. It started with, in a very weird way, there was a series called Patterson, which was written by Malcolm Bradbury and Christopher Bigsby, and it was based on a character who'd been a minor player in two of their earlier successes, which was the Play for Today, the After Dinner Game, and the novel and later TV series, The History Man, both set in higher education in the post-radicalisation era. And Patterson is a sort of ordinary, affable lecturer who's a bit backgroundy, and they thought there's potential in him. Let's put him in a series where he goes to a new university that's full of mad people who doesn't know what to do when his life falls apart. The only thing is, if you're familiar with Malcolm Bradbury's work, you know that somebody's life falling apart isn't just the door handle comes off in their hands. It's a wild tale of all kinds of sexual intrigue, all kinds of financial misdemeanours, and whether or not the head of the department ever owned a lawnmower or not, which is a massive plot point. But <laughs> it was done for Radio 4. And, you know, it had quite high-profile cast produced by Jeffrey Perkins, who was an up-and-coming star of radio comedy at that point, and they listened to it and said... We can't broadcast this. And somebody at Radio 3 who was a fan of Malcolm Bradbury heard about this and thought, well, we'll put that out. I would say it got a largely positive reception. It wasn't universally well received, but it did have its fans and it was immediately repeated on Radio 2. And you can find more details of The Lark's Ascending, which covers Radio 3 shows by Chris Morris, Peter Cook, Armando Unucci, Sue Townsend, Joe Wharton, Kenneth Williams, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and many more at timworthington.org. While Patterson was actually being broadcast, chances are that you were more likely to be found collecting Panini Football 81 stickers. But once you've collected them all, where else is there left to go? Well, actor Michael Livesley had some thoughts about that. What it was was, do you remember uh, Panini stickers for football? Yeah, right. Yes. So you had your Panini stickers, which were great stickers, and, and then the Scottish teams at the back were like half stickers, you know, because they're Scottish and need to be kept <laughs> in their place. So you'd have stickers, and everyone understood that. And I remember Football 81 very well. We had, as all villages had, you've got your news agents. In fact, we had three news agents. We had George Shaws, we had David Shaws, and we had Smethurst, I think it was. Smethurst Shaws, was it? Smethurst Shaws, yeah. Well, the Shaws were like a cabal in ADOC. <laughs> at the top of the road, we had Shaws, Shaw's news agents, David Shaw, then you had Shaw's Chippy, then you had Shaw's wool shop that his wife ran with her mum. David Shaw was an enterprising man and he'd obviously noticed that Football 81 stickers were going like hotcakes. Mm. So the next thing what turned up were like these Football 78 things and they were cheaper. Mm. So you're like, oh, I'll try a couple of, you know, it's like yeah. it's like a junkie, isn't it? You know, so you'll take whatever the dealer's got. So anyway, these Football 78 cards, but again, you know, sort of like with old cars and old mm. telly and everything, you kind of, you, you mesmerised and hypnotised and seduced mm. by the kits with wider collars yes. and the bubbly permed Kevs yeah. and Trevs. And so you're like, you end up going back. But these things came with a, a 
as big as the football card, mm. which had stats on the back about the player, you yeah. know, it had a, a, a rectangle of pink bubble yes, gum it did. that yes. came with them. Now, by 1981, this <laughs> bubble gum was rock hard and just snapped. But of course, you still chewed the damn yeah. stuff. Of course, you know, manfully, you'd go on. But this gave me a bit of an obsession with old football and stuff mm. like Steve Coppel was on the front of the football 81. Because right. I remember my mate said, Oh, my dad says he needs glasses. So I drew glasses on with the bar. <laughs> <laughs> this gave me an obsession with the Liverpool team of 78 because I'm a mm. Liverpool fan and I ended up we had a competition in class uh, not what well, schools did and it was to draw a cartoon of the Green Cross Code you know representing yeah. and I drew this terrible depiction of Emlyn Hughes with a very long leg who by this time was playing for Swansea City <laughs> in a Liverpool strip and over the top I did this uh, you know commentator saying how's that for a Green Cross goal anyway <laughs> I won. It's the only thing I've ever won in my life, you know. And so obviously this, this whoever judged it must have gone, oh, poor bugger, he mustn't see the football very often. Emily Hughes hasn't played there for three years. What I mainly remember about them was the fact about football players on the back. For a start, it would have like little flags of where they played. It'd yeah. say like GB, yeah. SP, and there'd be all things like letters that I still don't understand, like KDR. Yeah, mad countries. I still don't. And the other thing was there'd be a little bio of their their recent form, which I'm convinced that's what inspired in the the book of Fist of Fun, the Liam Herring series. It's got a page of like mocked up football stickers, <laughs> with, like little bios about the player that South Bedeen's secret weapon, and he burrows under the pitch and absolutely the goal. Supposing you were bored of swaps and didn't even like football that much in the first place, though. Well, you could always spend your time learning about hammer-ons, midi and snare fills from BBC Two's Rock School, as Beatles expert Chris Shaw was only too pleased to tell us about. My memory is extremely fond because I would inevitably skive off double games to watch this and it was just, for me, the coolest thing. I've seen clips now which, looking back, you can, yeah, you can change your mind. At the time, as a kid, these were the three coolest people I'd ever seen in my life. There was Deirdre, Deirdre Cartwright. Obviously, I've looked this up since. I knew them as Deirdre, Jeff and Henry. But um, there was Deirdre Cartwright, who was guitar. Jeff Nichols, who was on drums. Henry Thomas on bass. And they would effectively teach you, in a really basic way, how to play in a band. In a, whether it be a blues band, heavy metal, reggae, funk, disco, anything. And oh, I used to love, it was the coolest thing I remember, probably because I should have been at school, <laughs> may have tainted it slightly for me. Well, did you know that it was actually a co-production with Lorimar, the American production company? So the same people who made Dallas yes. and the Waltons and Second Division Video Nasty Dead and Buried. But it was shown over there with Herbie Hancock linking it. But even better still, it was produced by the Educational Broadcasting Corporation, which I always really loved because the initials are EPC, the same as EPU's broadcasting company. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember that you, you could clearly see the bits that were made in the UK and the bits that were made in the US because the, the UK ones are very... Hello, and today we're going to teach you how to play uh, some funk. And then it would cut to, like, Niall Rogers or whatever, and it was clearly filmed somewhere else, and he was being really cool. Yeah, the vague recollection. There was one explaining how MIDI worked, which featured Jan Hammer, and I'm fairly sure he wouldn't have just been passing the BBC's Riverside Studios. <laughs> yeah, it was all very much, look at this new technology. Isn't it amazing? Whereas in the UK yeah. version, it'd be somebody like Mick Parfit saying, if you play on the downstroke, <laughs> it is louder. 
which, to be fair, is right. But do, I think they, I'm sure they had what, John Entwistle, I seem to remember vaguely. Yeah, John Entwistle was on, but the name that really left out with me was the Communards. Because it ran from 1983 to 1987, which I was quite surprised by, really, because I thought it was really just a year or so. Because you seem to get everyone from Vince Clark to Carl Palmer. Was this the UK one? Well, given that the next one I was going to name was Motorhead, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think they were all sort of mishmashed together, and the Americans probably just put their own linking bits on. Oh, OK. Again, my, my memory of it, and which has been confirmed having watched a few for this is the Deirdre, Jeff and Henry. They are brilliant musicians. They are fantastic. But their presenting skills are really, you know, read the auto cue. And that's kind of it. And oh, bless them. I'm, I'm sure I read somewhere Deirdre's still, I think she's quite famous now in uh, teaching. I think all of them have sort of moved on into, you know, top level musician jobs. But they were great. And they were, again, it's, it's all juxtaposition. It was my, I should have been at games running around and it's pouring down with rain playing rugby. But no, I was watching Deirdre Cunt, an amazing guitar solo to Motorhead songs. Well, I think it's true that we did value programmes like this a bit more because at that point, there was almost a finite amount of music television on. I mean, I'm not going to turn it into some ridiculous sob story because, you know, I'm sure in the 50s all they had was Oh Boy once a week and... That was probably it. But even so, I mean, if you wanted to see pop music, there was Top of the Pops, there was the occasional programme like this. But otherwise, you had to get up on the Saturday morning, watch the Saturday morning shows in a faint hope there might be a band on or the occasional children's BBC or children's ITV show. And really, there wasn't very much beyond that. For me, it was, I mean, I was in a band for years um, and this was definitely a massive influence on me because the one thing I do remember was thinking, so I would have been, I don't know, 13, 14 maybe. And these guys, they didn't look that much older than me. And they're on TV playing in a band. And that, for me, was as much an influence as reading the Ray Coleman, John Lennon book which effectively said the same thing. You know, John Lennon more or less gave up on school at about 15. Two very bad influences on me. But, uh, yeah, it kind of turned out right in the end, I suppose. We're going to need a massive Seinfeld-style slot-based voluntary to get us from rock schools to confectionery advertising campaigns. But that's where we're going anyway, as actor Paul Putner was only too keen to take us on a trip to Treeballland. What I want to discuss on, on a confectionery-based level is... Treeball, in particular Treeball Land, which was a campaign, an aggressive campaign that they did on television and in children's comics at the time for offers and, and prizes and send off for gifts, where you basically had to eat your own body weight in sweets <laughs> to enter these competitions. And I entered a, a couple of them. They used to have this advert. Used to know all the lyrics to it. Grab a blackjack, fruit salad, flavour chew. Marty juice, Marty juice. We're one a penny, two a penny, nothing to lose. Shuffle <laughs> to your sweet shop and get some chews. So I still remember the lyrics over 40 years later. And so you had that on the telly a lot. And then you get these adverts in the, in, in Wizard and Chips, Whoopee, mainly the IPC comics, Monster Fun. And they were, there was one competition where they said, design a stamp for Treeboreland and get any wish you want so it was a bit like getting a bit of a um, piece of the Jim will fix it action and so I, I designed a fantastic stamp and my friend did and then we went out and bought about 30 packets of blobs over a month or we used to go in and steal the wrappers but leave the sweets so it felt like we weren't quite stealing 
and then sent off. And I wanted to meet Jaws from The Spy Who Loved Me. That was my fantasy, Richard Keel. And I came second and won a poster. So I was quite surprised by that until I went round to tell my friend and he discovered that he came second as well. And then I came second again (laughs) because I entered about three times Mm. the following week. And I think I came second one more time. So that was a bit of a scam. So they just wanted you to keep buying their products. Keep buying (laughs) these bloody sweets. And then they used to have these toys you could buy, which each toy was related to a particular suite. For example, there was a granny kite. I can't remember what the suite was for that. There was a blackjack riddle diddler, which is about as unwoke as you can get. Mm. A blobs raspberry blower record, which was a little flexi disc with its own needle, which you could play and it would go... So you couldn't hear anything. Oh, and a little boomerang, which didn't work. And it was all just tat which you'd, you'd spent all this money on, on whopper bars and hunk bars and blobs. Blobs were weird, weren't they? Ginger beer and mm. sherbet flavour. And... Well, that's the main thing that I know it from. Was It seemed, always seemed to me that any old comic I managed to get hold mm. of, you know, mm. like an, any IPC comic, mm. had the exact same advert in, which was a comic strip mm. called Patch and the Monsters. It wasn't advert for Patch Blobs. Patch and the Monsters. But it, it had that air of... Almost like they were trying to fool you yes. into thinking it was part of the comic to make you buy it, but it just didn't, it wasn't convincing enough. No. Even as a little kid when I saw this, I thought, yeah. it doesn't quite, it's like, it was like the way if an animated public information film came on for about a second, you yes. think, oh, it's a cartoon. And yeah, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's not a cartoon. That's no, not no, right. That's, that's a Trojan horse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that, funny enough, one of the gifts that you would get if you bought enough chocolate bars of Monsters Laughs and Furry Friends, was in an inflatable patch and an inflatable monster, which came up to your knee. Well, a bit hot, well no, it would come up to your, to your chest if you were a little kid. And again, they would swim. And just def- <laughs> deflated with all the seams sort of ripped. And, mm-hmm. But you see, the thing was, at that age, I was so suggestible to advertising and, and things I liked. I remember once, it was a Sunday morning, and we were watching Laurel and Hardy on the telly, and I was laughing so much, and I loved it so much, and this was before having a, a VCR, and I thought, well, that's over now. How am I going to get more Laurel and Hardy? How can I experience more Stan and Ollie? And the only way I could do that was cycling before the shop shut at noon to the sweet shop to buy a Laurel and Hardy toffee lolly which the only thing that connected it to laurel and hardy was a picture a cartoon picture of them on the jar that the lollies came out but i felt that i I was still in the in that zone was it them or was it the cartoon then it was (laughs) it was the cartoon then so it wasn't even the actual actors Mm -hmm. but it was still laurel and hardy ish they didn't mention that in Stan and Ollie. <laughs> no. Well, I was going to say, shouldn't you, rather than cycling there, shouldn't you have gone on one of those things that they used to have, uh, well, you know, the railway... Uh, on the railway, the with the handle going up and down. Yeah, well, that's what it felt like. <laughs> Just zooming over there to, to get these things, yeah. It's not an up-and-down railway trolley thing that's taking us into our next clip, though, but a canal boat, as that's where musician Andy Lewis after tasting some foul-sounding cola, had a formative encounter with some graffiti railing against one of history's most risible bigots. There is a formative moment in my life towards the, the autumn of 1975, 
and we're on a canal holiday through the Leicestershire countryside, my mother and father and my sister and I, and we're all on this narrow boat called Thrush, hilariously enough, which made me wonder if there were others in the series called things like Smirch and Spectre, I don't know, um, or whether they were just named after domestic wildfowl. But anyway, here we are, we're, we're going along the canal, and there's all sorts of things on this formative canal holiday which I, I, I which stay in my mind like you know they're indelibly printed there we're stopping off at this strange grim industrial village in the middle of some fields where you had to sort of trudge through the fields to get to it called Fleckney and um, getting some fish and chips and there weren't any ordinary drinks there mm. it was all made by this company called Furnival's of Fleckney <laughs> who had this huge chimney like in something out of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory you know with smoke coming out of it and there was this substance called solar cola which was like nothing else that I'd ever seen it was as though someone had sort of like phoned through a description of what coke tasted like to some industrial spying concern and they'd mm. auctioned it off and Furnival's had got it and then recreated it from this vague instructions of what it tasted like it tasted nothing like coke anyway that was that motoring further along towards Leicester you know things like someone had done an impromptu fireworks display by sticking a load of fireworks into polystyrene blocks and setting them free into the mm. canal and we somehow had to navigate our way through that went under this bridge going into Leicester and written on the side of it in huge Huge letters, balls to Enoch Powell. <laughs> you know, you know, in the sort of lettering that you would you, you would imagine somebody tagging something. Now that sort yeah. of size, balls to Enoch Powell. <laughs> what impressed me was that it wasn't on the towpath side. Mm. Someone had gone across it, gone across the canal, and written it on the other side of the bridge, balls to Enoch Powell. So as we went through there, I'm sort of looking at it. Going, Balls to Enoch Powell. You know, five years old I was. Funny thing was, I knew who Enoch Powell was. Mm. I knew he was that shouty man who talked an awful lot of rubbish about the European community and the common market and who seemed to have all sorts of daft opinions about people I was at school with. To wit, you know, people who were black or Asian or Indian or wherever they were from. He generally had this mystique about him, like a kind of malevolent spirit. He was mm. like a, a cartoon villain. I mean, he even looked a little bit sort of hooded clawish. Well, I, well I recently listened to his Desert Island discs, just because I've made the commitment to try and listen to all of the ones that mm. are on the BBC website. I was actually, he started shouting at Sue Lawley mm. for, he said, misquoting the, you know, the Rivers of Blood speech. And she said, I'm reading from a transcript. And he was almost screaming, you are not saying it in context. I was actually a bit frightened of him. Yes. This, this dead idiot, yes. you know, talking nearly three decades ago. And I was, I was walking, you know, I was listening to it on my headphones and I was actually quite scared of him. Yeah. <laughs> But there he was, you know, and, and, and going going along the canal, heading up to Leicester, which even at the time was somewhere that was that had a reputation for being multicultural because mm. of the textile industry. Yeah. And bearing in mind in 1975, as we motored into Leicester going along the canal on the MV Thrush, we passed by the, 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 the Courtaulds factory, which was all sort of like you could see in there and it was all stuff being spun. And there's that mm. huge place where the Montfort University now is, where it was all industrial and lining the, the, the banks of the, the Royal Mile or whatever it's called, the River Saw, as you go in up to up, you know, the, up the canal into Leicester. And thinking that there were more people in the world at that point who thought Enoch Powell was an idiot mm. and realising that you know I wasn't entirely sure what balls to Enoch Powell meant but I was pretty mm. certain that the person who wrote it didn't mean it like 
here's a ball, would you like a game of footy with it? You know, <laughs> wasn't offering him a game of rounders. You know, it was, mm. this, was, this was someone who was basically saying, you're an idiot, what you say is rubbish, it's dangerous, you, 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 you're talking through your hat. And the very fact that earlier that year there'd mm. been the referendum on staying in the European Union, and, and, and stay, right, the, the, the common market, as we mm. have to call it, but even then it was the European community. And I know it was that because it was written on the ballot paper, and I know what was written on the ballot paper because we had the day off school, mm. and my dad took me to school when he went and voted. And he lifted me up to show me what he was doing, and he showed me what he was voting and why he explained to me you know i'm voting that we should stay in the european union because i think it's going to be the best thing for you and he was right and i've had an, an amazing career in the music business mm. working with people across continental europe traveling around djing touring doing all the stuff that i do some people say yeah but you'll still be able to do that when we leave mm. and well yeah we, we did it before we joined and all this sort of thing and generally speaking they're possibly right mm. but we won't be able to do it with the same degree of ease nope. and economy that we can do it now the other thing i'll say about enoch powell is that a few weeks ago it was brought to my attention that on one of these kind of mod memorabilia websites where mm. you can buy things to stick on your scooter or sew on your jacket, there was a, 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 a sticker which quoted the bits of the Rivers of Blood speech oh. and had a picture of Enoch Powell with a Union Jack in the background mm. and it said something like National Hero or something. I was absolutely horrified. And I didn't think mm. that here we are many, many, many years after his death that we'd still be having to say balls to Enoch yeah. Powell. Some graffiti we can probably all get behind there, but it wasn't all about Enoch Powell and his boneheaded speech in 1969, though. Here's something that you might not have heard before. Me on the Round the Archives podcast talking to Lisa Parker and Andrew Trowbridge, who you might have heard on another edition of Looks Unfamiliar, talking about the very last episode of Chigley. So... Tell us about this episode, Tim. Well, this is of particular interest to me, because anyone who knows me or even knows about me will know how obsessed I am with Campbell Green, Trumpton and Chickley. But I've always had a real kind of soft spot for Chickley, because it is the forgotten one in a lot of ways. I mean, Gordon Murray did other series less well-remembered, but it's the one that, for a number of reasons, it didn't quite take off at the time. There wasn't very much tie-in merchandise. It wasn't repeated as much as the others, even though, weirdly, it was the last one to actually be shown regularly by the BBC and people just don't remember it as much and yet it's got that real kind of end of the 60s feel to it in that I don't mean you know the Harry Farthing and Winnie were going out you know of fermenting revolution on the streets you know like uh, singing street fighting man and so on but it has got that kind of thank you and good night feel like a lot of things in 1969 did. I mean, I think primarily the end of the war games, you know, which is literally not just Patrick Troughton spinning away into the distance, but the whole of black and white Doctor Who, the whole way of making that. And Chigley kind of ties in with that to me because it's the end of something that had been a very big television phenomenon in the 60s. And it's the absolute line drawn under it. Because you say in the book that people sort of get them mixed up in their heads as to, as to sort of which series is which. And because Chigley always starts somewhere else, doesn't it? This one we're starting in Trumpton Town Square, aren't we? With Mr. Antonio flogging his ice creams. 
That's right, and it struck me re-watching it that there is the episode of Trumpton where Mr. Antonio parks in front of Mrs. Coppett, the flower seller, and they have to come to a, sort of an uneasy truce about who does what. Well, they've obviously worked it out by now because they're positioned adjacent to each other and both picking up the passing trade. So, well, I, I like it. I like his truck. It's quite colourful, except I've noticed it's got an evil face on the front. It's... <laughs> I, I know you were scared of the clown, weren't you? Uh, but the, this truck looked like it's up to no good to me. I'm also worried about the ground clearance on it because the, the bottom of it's really low. So I was imagining if they ever introduced like speed humps into Trumpton, <laughs> he'd just get marooned on top of one. But it, you've got ices sort of letrosetted on the side of the. Ices? Uh, no, ices. Ices. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a whole different series. Electrosetted on the side of his of his truck, and I notice it's the same font used in, in the Man from Uncle. It is. It's it's the same font as well. Like that, every shop in the seventies that had been around in the sixties had, and it would just generically say butchers or grocers. Nobody with an actual name for their shop used that font. It was just the generic shops, you know, baker. But anyway, he goes off heading on his way about three miles an hour because he's heading for Winkstead Hall, isn't he? Mm. Did you notice his coat's changed? By the way, his what? His coat. His is. His coat has changed because in Trump, he's got that lovely crisp white kind of lab coat, like he's a member of AMM, the 60s free jazz outfit. But in this one, it's all grimy and rough and mucky. It, either he's fallen on hard times or he's fallen in with some hippies or just Gordon Murray forgot to put that puppet away properly and it's just gathering dust in the corner. What I'm concerned about is his ice lollies because they're all exposed to the elements. If he's like driving through a cloud of midges or something like that, they're going to just get stuck to the <laughs> stuck to the lollies. It's not very hygienic. But we arrive at Winkstead Hall and he's got a tin of ice cream for Bracket. Which is the size of an oil tanker. How are they going to eat that much ice cream? The two of them. Even if they get Mr. Bilton some. It's, you know, that's a tall order. Yes, Mr. Bilton turns up and he wants a peppermint one for some reason. I've never had peppermint You've never had peppermint ice cream? There's no peppermint ice cream. No, they've, they've made that up. Unless it was some 60s fad that, you know, is lost to time. Nobody had the peppermint ice cream, ever. But Mr. Bilton's complaining about his rheumatics and he goes off to the area around his greenhouse where he's got this sort of skanky old wheelbarrow. And behind the wall, I don't know whether you've ever noticed it, there's a tree in the first shot, but later on that tree disappears. Yes! I don't know. I mean, there's very few slip-ups in the whole of the three series, but that is unforgivable, that one. That is so glad. I think even as a child I noticed that. Well, the tree's there earlier on. Then Mr Antonio somehow gets talked into mowing the lawn. Yeah, it's like the adventures of Tom Sawyer, isn't it? Where he convinces the other kids to paint the fence. It's exactly like that. I, I don't believe he had rheumatics at all. Just didn't feel like doing it. Well, I, I think he's faking it because Bayleaf in the herbs is often complaining about his back and things <laughs> like that. I think it's just a sort of gardener sort of way of getting out of things. I am concerned about Mr Antonio's mowing technique, though. Because if you're like mowing a stately home lawn, you're supposed to do it in stripes, aren't you? But yes, he's, that's he's, true. Yeah. He's, he's all over the place. You know, he's, he's not doing it in straight lines at all. He does one bit of it several times. <laughs> no grass left. <laughs> so eventually the, the mowing is achieved. He goes back to see Mr. Bilton, 
the trees vanished and now there, there, there's a load of bushes behind the wall. I can only assume he took so long to mow the lawn that the bushes have grown in the interim and uh, and the trees fallen down. Though one of the bushes does actually seem to lurch over slowly in the shot and disappear. So watch out for that one. I don't know if you've seen that. It's like that bit of Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, the Alan Freeman section with the overgrowing plants. But M- Mr. Bilton is still complaining because he wants this sort of motorised barrow thing, doesn't he? But uh, they can't afford it because the roof needs to be repaired. They're hoping for some more visitors and off Mr. Antonio goes, heading for the pottery. His ice lollies are still out, out in the open. He arrives at Mr. Farthing's and gives Winnie a suspicious-looking yellow lolly. I'm just wondering what the lolly's made out of. It's a very dark yellow, and she spends all the time sniffing it, apparently. So, yeah, it looked like medicine to me. I'll give them that benefit of the doubt. Yeah, Mr. Crockett then gets all the gossip, and then later on, one week later, at Winkstead Hall, Mr. Brackett gets a phone call. Now, Mr. Brackett, I have to ask... When you were small, did you ever do an impression of him walking up the corridor? Because I did. We not only did, me and one of my sisters broke the latch on the sideboard in the front room. Because we had the thing about, we thought he was walking with his feet together. So we were like kind of hopping in unison on two feet. And we somehow broke the latch on this sideboard, which was a downward door. And we didn't say anything about it. We just just left it. And it, it later, like, because it wasn't repairable for some reason. But they used to wedge it shut with torn out pages from the Sunday Times magazine. And, of course, it would work its way loose. And in the middle of the night, you'd hear this almighty crash that would wake everyone up. It was that. It had come down. And we never owned up to it until a couple of years ago. I personally blame Mr. Brackett for that. One thing that always sticks in my mind as well from that, that sequence is, is that the wallpaper, which is a very weird design... And does remember the lo- the sort of black and white lino we used to have in our toilet floor. It was sort of <laughs> black with white white sort of streaks and patterns on it. And also, they've got framed, like, they're not even pictures, framed tinfoil. Yeah, very, very strange sort of decor they go in for at Win- <laughs> Winkstead Hall. We finally meet his lordship, who's got a huge waste paper bin with nothing in it. <laughs> noticed that <laughs> well, he's got two sheets of paper on his desk so he, he's clearly not inundated with paperwork i could understand <laughs> if he had an in-tray or something but then we get the sort of stock footage of of bessie as we go off to the wharf it's very monkey stock footage as well isn't it it's really battered you can tell where they've spliced it in again i have to ask the question did we ever see a turntable or anything like that for bessie because they drive out of the where they keep it, go up to the wharf, and do they have to reverse all the way up the line again to get back, or is there a loop or something like that? I don't know, because you do see them returning in some episodes. You never see it turn round, though. And the return journey is different, so it must be a loop line. But off to the wharf we go for a crate, and the crate is sort of balanced precariously in one of the trucks that you sit in. It's not even a proper flatbed sort of truck, and it doesn't quite fit because the edge of it's hanging over the the side. And I I just wrote, that's dangerous and it doesn't fit. The six o'clock whistle goes and all the work units come out of the the biscuit factory. Have you ever noticed the drunk one coming out? The very last worker that comes out is staggering all over the place, waving his arms madly. (laughs) Is there something in in the Chigley biscuits, alcohol by volume 5% or something like that? But yeah, Mr Crockett arrives and nearly drives straight into the back cloth, which is very, very wrinkled. (laughs) 
I think he needs his brake seen too. But the crate is opened and it's this sort of mini sort of steam engine thing, isn't it? Yes, which somehow powers the motor. That's uh, Sorry, powers the mower. Yeah. Yeah, the motor powering the motor would not be very remarkable. Yeah, and Mr. Bilton gets a sort of trailer thing as well. And I love the fact that Mr. Bilton immediately sort of gets on it and drives off. He's had no, like, <laughs> training in operating this thing. I just imagine an almighty crash from the garden wall, which has already had at least one accident, hasn't it? And then uh, Lord Belborough gets his organ out, as usual, and, and the Russian peasants start to dance. And that's that's Chigley. Yeah, and that's the absolute end of it, isn't it? You know, you've got the captions after it, but that's that's it. That was goodbye to the 60s. I mean, what was the actual date it was on? It was, it was the 29th of December 1969. So, yeah, this is, as you say, this is very much the 60s coming to an end. I hope you've enjoyed that collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar. If you have enjoyed it, don't forget that you can find the full shows and lots more besides at timworthington.org. And while you're there, why not help support Looks Unfamiliar by buying one of my books? If you like the bit about the Largs Ascending, there's an advert coming up in a minute to remind you. See you soon. You can see what they were doing at the time, but it doesn't sit right now. A bit like me, referring to jokes we used to make about school women. I say that on the proviso of understanding that I would not say that now. Even saying that makes me sound like some dim comedy troupe on some clip show saying, OMG, did they really used to be that poetry on the television with big beards? But, you know, hey, I was 13, they're fully grown men. So they, and it was decades ago, so who's laughing now, eh? Well, me for one. The Lark's Ascending, a complete guide to comedy on BBC Radio 3, featuring Chris Morris, Peter Cook, Sue Townsend, Rowan Atkinson, Peter Tinniswood, N.F. Simpson, Armando Yanucci, the National Theatre of Brent, Ivor Cutler, Leonard Brossiter, John Sessions, Kenneth Williams, Joe Orton, Dave Renwick, Andrew Marshall, the BBC Radio Play Workshop, the King Singers, the Beatles and more. More details, timworthington.org. Right, here's a fun game we'll do. It's called, Is This a Real Rupert Story Appearing in the Book or Not? Go on then. Rupert and the Dover Soul. Yes. I can confirm that it's a real Rupert <laughs> story appearing in this 1964 annual. Rupert and the Trouble with Knives. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. Sadly, no. Sadly, uh... I was 65, you're thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rupert and the Compass. Yes. Obviously, because it's the most boring sounding thing. <laughs> <laughs> Rupert and a stick, yes. Rupert and the time he met Mark Gardiner from Ride. <laughs> I don't think that's a real one. No, it was a little book. It was a little Rupert, Rupert and the Dog Roses. Yes. That was incorrect. And Rupert and the Stone Roses. <laughs> <laughs> now, hang on. <laughs> I mean, oh. Rupert probably saw them before they were famous, so yeah, I'm going to say yes. Yellow panted twat. <laughs> yeah, <it> was... <laughs> I'm afraid not. I've just had a look at the first page of Rupert and the Dover Soul. Right. And he's smelling something. He's, him and Is his it... mum are looking for a smell. 
Are they looking for a smell, or are they sniffing uh, for a smell? Yes, they, they can they can smell. Then Rupert sniffs a roadside weed. The smell is very strong indeed. Please, kids, if you're thinking of smelling roadside weeds, please, please don't uh, smell uh, roadside well, weeds. At the very least, try not to have an annual about it so other people have to hear about it. And finally, Rupert and the bloody bastard list of things of the past. 